This program has been approved for 1 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Shoulder instability, rotator cuff tears, and shoulder arthritis. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In 1963, the very first symposium on the surgery of the shoulder region was held in Montreal, Canada. It has only been in recent decades that shoulder surgery has become recognized as an orthopedic subspecialty. Conferences like the inaugural one in Montreal have led to the sharing of new understanding of shoulder pathology and novel treatments. But, of course, shoulder pathology has existed since the dawn of time. In fact, Egyptian hieroglyphs dating back three millennia depict methods of shoulder reduction to treat dislocation. The father of Western medicine, Hippocrates, introduced the traction method of shoulder reduction, which has been the primary method of reduction used for centuries. It wasn't until 1893 that the first shoulder arthroplasty was performed. The prosthetic used at that time was made out of platinum and leather. By the 20th century, treatments for shoulder pathology were rapidly evolving, and there have now been nearly 150 different shoulder procedures described to correct anterior dislocation alone. Shoulder joint prosthesis have come a long way too, and they're now used to treat a variety of case causes of shoulder disorders. In the latter half of the 20th century, the development of arthroscopic surgery has allowed for additional advancements in both the diagnosis and the treatment. Plus, improvements in imaging modalities, including ultrasonography and MRI, have enhanced diagnostic accuracy. It's a good thing, too, since approximately a quarter of adults will experience shoulder pain, which can limit both activities at work and activities at home. 
Here at Ohio State University, we have orthopedic experts specializing in shoulder surgery, and I am very pleased to have one of them here with me on MedNet today. Dr. Ryan Rock is an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, and Ryan specializes in sports medicine in addition to shoulder surgery and has served as team physician for a variety of teams, including the New York Giants, New York Red Bulls, and now Ohio State football. Ryan, welcome to MedNet. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to going through some shoulder uh, slides here for everyone. Perfect. Now, Ryan, what are some of the most common causes of shoulder pain? Yes, I'd say the, the number one thing that I see people with shoulder pain for is some issue with the rotator cuff. And mm -hmm. often it's inflammation or impingement around the rotator cuff or as um, with uh, as we age, rotator cuff tears become more and more common. Okay. Now, aside from pain, what are some of the most common symptoms of shoulder pathology? Yeah, so uh, in our younger patient population, rather than pain, it often is instability, so the feeling that the shoulder gives out on them. Mm -hmm. And then with more significant rotator cuff tears, in addition to pain, it's weakness. So those are kind of the other two symptoms that we look out for. Perfect. Excited to hear more about that. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all 120 of our webcasts there, along with the slides and instructions to get your CME credit and ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. We've switched to a new podcast platform, so please search for OSU MedNet 21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs, please send those to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of our webcast player. Now let's get started. Ryan? Great. So um, as mentioned, we're going to go through evaluation and treatment of common shoulder conditions. For an outline, we'll talk about some anatomy, um, evaluation and examination. And then for specific pathology, we'll get into rotator cuff tears, frozen shoulder, arthritis, uh, biceps labrum, and instability uh, issues with the shoulder. So the, the major issue with shoulder pain um, is really trying to elicit what exactly is causing that pain. And that's probably the biggest um, issue that um, we see and that patients can present with similar imaging findings, but it can be a challenge to figure out exactly what is causing their pain. As we all know, the glenohumeral joint, unlike the more constrained joints like our hip, which is a ball in a socket, the glenohumeral joint is really, it's like a golf ball sitting on a golf tee. So there's not a lot of inherent stability. This allows you to have maximal range of motion so we can do all these things like this pitcher up at the top uh, throwing a baseball 100 miles an hour. Um, but with that, you also need to rely on your static and dynamic stabilizers. So your static stabilizers are your capsule, your ligaments, uh, and your labrum. And then dynamic stabilizers, which end up being the key for a lot of the non-operative or physical therapy uh, treatments for the shoulder, is predominantly the rotator cuff muscles as well as your scapular stabilizers. An easy mnemonic for your rotator cuff muscles is, the, is SITS, which we probably all remember from medical school, but it's your supraspinatus, which allows abduction, infraspinatus, external rotation, teres minor, external rotation, and your subscapularis, which is internal rotation. And the goal of the four rotator cuff muscles is really to depress the humeral head against the glenoid to allow full abduction. Shoulder pathology can vary. Um, on the top of the shoulder, you have your chromioclavicular joint, which can have a separation. It can get arthritis, or you can get distal clavicle osteolysis. For your cuff, you can get a partial tear or tendinopathy, impingement, bursitis. And inside the joint, you can have a frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis, arthritis or instability, or biceps labrum issues. 
And the other thing to always have in the back of your mind is scapular dyskinesis or other issue, or issues uh, pertaining to the shoulder blade. And history and exam are really far more important than imaging for the majority of shoulder pathology. So clues as far as what's causing a patient's pain. Uh, location is the first thing I often will ask. Where does it hurt the most? So in the front of the shoulder, you have a long head of your biceps, your subscap or your pec. On top, again, that AC joint. Posterior, you start thinking about whether it's posterior instability or something related to the shoulder blade. And the most common thing is for a rotator cuff is the patch sign, so really having pain on the outside of the shoulder here. And then the deep toothachy pain, you start thinking more about frozen shoulder or arthritis. Another important factor is age. So a lot of times when you see a patient on your clinic schedule, um, age and chief complaint can cue you in a lot to, to um, start to hone in on what the differential is. So in the younger, more active patients, start thinking more about labral tears or instability. Occasionally they can get impingement or inflammation around the rotator cuff or biceps. They can get shoulder separations. Um, as we get older, we start thinking more about rotator cuff issues. So whether it's an impingement or partial tears, frozen shoulder, if you start to see females with diabetes in their mid-40s and hyperthyroid, um, that needs to move up higher on your differential. And then in the over 55 population, that's where your rotator cuff full thickness tears become more common. Glenohumeral arthritis becomes more common as well. And then mechanism, I think, is another important uh, distinguishing factor. So um, I really break these into two buckets of a traumatic injury or more of an overuse type injury. And that should really discern kind of your first line treatments for these patients, whether it's going to be getting advanced imaging or needing to proceed with more conservative measures like an injection or physical therapy. And one important thing to point out for range of motion is in rotator cuff pathology, they'll have decreased active motion, but they typically have preserved passive range of motion. Occasionally it can be pain limited, but if you can um, take the arm through range of motion and it's relatively uh, complete, but their active motion is limited. You start thinking about rotator cuff. If they also have limited passive range of motion, that's more common with your frozen shoulder or arthritis type patients. So I always start with uh, x-rays for all patients. I think it's extremely valuable, um, one, to see if there's any uh, underlying arthritis in the shoulder, um, if there's any calcific tendonitis, which you would see on the x-ray. And so my series is an AP, which is, this is just the arm in a natural position, uh, that's a scapular Y, which is in line with the plane of scapula, the plane of the scapula. An axillary, I think, is a, a extremely important, particularly if you're worried about instability. So this will prove to you that the joint is not dislocated. So you have a concentric glenohumeral joint there. Um, and, and those views, I think, are a good place to start with anyone complaining about shoulder pain. As far as examination, we'll go through some videos here in the next slides, but start with inspection, palpation, check range of motion strength testing, and then we'll go through some special tests as well. Evaluation for scapular dyskinesis begins with observing the patient moving through full range of motion of concentric abduction and eccentric abduction, concentric forward flexion and eccentric forward flexion. The examiner will observe for poor control of the scapula with these maneuvers. This test may also be observed by having the patient do a push-up against the examination table. Begin with palpation of the acromioclavicular joint. Next, palpate the sternal clavicular joint. 
This is followed with palpation of the long head of the biceps. Now the examiner will palpate the supraspinatus muscle, the infraspinatus, and the teres minor. From an anterior approach, the examiner will be able to palpate the subscapularis muscle. Now the examiner will assess for tightness or pain in some of the scapular stabilizing muscles, the trapezius and the rhomboids. Shoulder range of motion. Assess active abduction. Assess active forward flexion. Assess active extension. Next, the examiner will assess active adduction bilaterally. Next, we will assess for active external rotation and internal rotation with the arms both at the side and at 9 degrees of abduction. Next, the examiner will assess for passive external rotation and internal rotation, specifically assessing for glenohumeral internal rotation deficit, which is often seen in throwers. So you can see in that picture on the on the bottom right here um, that those are that's an example of glenohumeral internal rotation deficit on the right shoulder. A couple other points just on the exam before we talk about some strength testing um, is I do think it's important to have the shoulder girdle exposed, so whether that's having them take their shirt off or use some type of gown to to have access to really look at the shoulder because um, you'll pick up things like atrophy um, and issues such as that much easier. So now we'll talk about a strength exam. Resisted external rotation test teres minor and infraspinatus. Internal rotation test subscapularis. Supraspinatus is tested with resisted abduction. Additional tests for subscapularis are the belly press-off test and the subscapularis lift-off test. Forward flexion is used to assess the anterior deltoid and the pectoralis major muscle. A positive drop arm test when the patient is unable to hold their arm up against gravity. This is usually indicative of a full thickness rotator cuff tear. Uh, so those are those are important uh, strength tests, particularly when a patient comes in after an injury um, and you're debating whether they need advanced imaging. So if they have a lot of weakness, those would definitely be cases where I would get an MRI after a traumatic injury. Um, for the acromioclavicular joint, uh, often this happens from a direct. Other issues there can be distal clavicle osteolysis in your young weightlifters or arthritis. And the exam for that is really assessing for tenderness over the AC joint, as well as pain with cross-arm adduction. The x-rays for this generally are the views that we talked about before, but additional views are called a Zanka view, which gets the AC joint more uh, on plane and allows you to look for AC separations, which are classified one through six in the various types. And really it's based on the degree of deformity. So type one and two, there's either no or minimal deformity to the AC joint. They often just present with pain directly over the AC joint. And we tend to see these in our contact athletes that have a direct impact, you know, such as a football or hockey player. For type three, they'll notice a bump over the AC joint. Um, and then type four actually goes posterior. Type five, it's displaced more than 100%, so very significant bump. And type six, it goes inferior, which is extremely rare. For the type four, five, and six, those generally benefit from an early referral to an orthopedic surgeon uh, to discuss potential surgical management. But the vast majority of AC sprains can be managed non-operatively. And this usually involves 
weaning out of a sling, getting into physical therapy, and I expect patients can generally get back to sports somewhere between three to 12 weeks, depending on how severe the injury and how uh, painful it is. So these x-rays show two different types of pathology in the AC joint. So the x-ray on the left is a AP view of the shoulder, but if you look up at the acromioclavicular joint, you see subchondral cyst, you see spurring around the distal clavicle. So that's arthrosis and in the painful setting, arthritis. An x-ray on the right, this is a young um, person who enjoys doing bench press, which is the most common type of uh, patient who gets this problem. But you can see resorption or osteolysis of the end of the clavicle on the x-ray here. And both of these, um, when combined with their physical exam, can be telltale signs of, of that's what's causing their issues. And these patients generally benefit from a course of oral anti-inflammatories, physical therapy, plus or minus an ultrasound-guided injection. And if they don't respond to those treatments, they can benefit from a surgery to remove the end of the distal clavicle. So that involves resecting about a centimeter of the distal clavicle um, so that the, uh, they don't have that bone-on-bone -bone arthritic-type pain. You create a gap there. So moving on to the rotator cuff. So for impingement or tendonitis, this often presents with the patch sign we talked about. So pain kind of right on the lateral side of the arm. Often they'll wonder why it hurts there when the rotator cuff is up higher, but it's, it very generally um, refers to right over the deltoid. Occasionally they'll have anterior or posterior pain, uh, pain with overhead motions. I'd say the most common reason that drives people to see a physician is pain at night. So if they have trouble sleeping, that's usually when they um, move from the I hope it just gets better to, hey, I should probably see somebody to evaluate this. And so I'd say night pain is probably the most common presenting factor for when a patient comes to the office to see me with a cuff issue. For the impingement or tendonitis, they generally don't have significant weakness, but they will have on testing of the rotator cuff. And it is it can sometimes be challenging to distinguish pain-limited weakness from true weakness. But I think trying to really get them to, to fire that muscle, even if just for a short period of time or temporarily can be helpful in discerning from a rotator cuff tear. And treatment for this is predominantly non-operative. The vast majority of patients respond to a course of physical therapy. The adjuncts to physical therapy for me are really if I think that their pain is gonna limit them from participating in physical therapy. So oral anti-inflammatories, a subacromial injection if they really seem like they're in too much pain to really get anything out of physical therapy. Otherwise, I try to get them into PT, you know, and, and rehab it. And usually within six weeks, patients improve. If they're not, and on advanced imaging, it really just looks like an impingement type lesion, you can do an arthroscopic decompression, which is get rid of the bone spur under the acromion and debride the rotator cuff. There are three main tests to assess for shoulder impingement. The first is empty can test where the patient attempts to abduct against resistance. The next is Hawkins test where the shoulder and elbow are flexed to 90 degrees, attempt to internally rotate the arm and assess for pain. The next is Nears test where the examiner passively forward flexes an internally rotated shoulder and assesses for pain. So those uh, three tests can be extremely effective for diagnosing impingement. And, and that in the setting of uh, intact strength usually makes me think that they're gonna benefit from physical therapy. So rotator cuff tears are extremely common. So as patients get older, the blood supply to the rotator cuff diminishes. And so the incidence of full thickness tears on people that may or may not be symptomatic increases as patients get over the age of 60. 
And so MRI studies and people that have no shoulder pain have found that you can have high rates of rotator cuff tears up to 30% in patients that really don't have an issue with the rotator cuff from a symptom perspective. And so often when I see patients that have an MRI that shows a full thickness tear, but their exam and their imaging are very reassuring, um, it just takes reassurance to kind of say, you know, you have a rotator cuff tear. A lot of people have these. It doesn't mean that it needs to be fixed in all patients. And so important things for determining treatment in those settings is how old are they, what kind of activities they like to do, how bad's the night pain. And probably the biggest distinction for me in patients that have a full thickness tear is, did this happen after an injury, like a fall from standing or higher energy, or has this just been a wear and tear issue over time? And then the other important thing to ask any patient is what have they tried? And so often they'll say they've done physical therapy, but I think it's really important to kind of discern how many visits, how many weeks did you try, um, did it help? Did it make things worse? Um, to really hone in on, on if they've um, given this a, a fair chance to improve with non-operative measures. Otherwise, injections can be helpful. Uh, if they've had them in, in the past, I want to know where they were given. Often they don't really know, so I'll ask, was it done with an ultrasound? Was the needle put in the back, the front, the side? Um, all those things can be effective uh, ways to discern what exactly a patient has tried before. And then ultimately, um, uh, surgery, you know, if they've had a prior surgery, I want to know about that as well. And so in this video, you can see this is uh, debriding the bursa around the rotator cuff. So the view is from the back. We're in the subacromial space, now cleaning the bursa on top of the rotator cuff. Um, and so, and that's the CA ligament in the front that you can see that shiny white structure. And really debriding all the unhealthy appearing tendon. In this case, there is a full thickness tear. You can see the hole in the uh, in the tendon more anteriorly there. And so part of the, the surgery is really getting rid of all that bursitis, getting rid of the bone spur to hopefully prevent the, or to minimize the uh, risk of recurrence in these cases. And so on exam, um, often they have pain with active range of motion, particularly when they get overhead. I wanna see that their passive range of motion is relatively preserved. If they have limited active and passive, again, I start thinking about frozen shoulder. I do all those tests uh, for the rotator cuff strength that we mentioned before, so looking for weakness and cuff testing. Um, and then I always check the biceps and AC joint, as well as, and this is a very important point, is there can be a lot of overlap between neck and shoulder pain. And so I always do neck range of motion, check a spurlings to make sure that it's not uh, really a, uh, a cervical issue that's causing their, their pain. Not actively hold their shoulder abducted at 90 degrees and it drops to their side. External rotation leg sign is positive when so the these are examples of a drop arm, arm in a position of full external, external rotation. rotation. So I don't know if that first part. So th those were examples of drop, a drop arm test and then a positive external rotation lag sign where you bring the arm out to the side and they can't maintain it there. Um, and so in both of those settings, I would be thinking about a, a significant tear in the rotator cuff. So typically if patients have either of those signs, that's going to prompt me to get an MRI, you know, before sending them to physical therapy. Always starting with x-rays. I think a couple interesting points is if they've had a chronic tear in the rotator cuff, instead of having an x-ray that looks like that with the arrows showing the acromiohumeral interval, um, they can get a high riding humeral head. So here you can see the head is up against the acromion. There's obviously no space for a rotator cuff, so that's a patient that's had a chronic tear in the rotator cuff, not something that's going to be fixed arthroscopically, probably if they're not getting better with conservative measures, um, something that would need a replacement down the road. 
the other thing you can see on x-ray is what's called the inferior beard osteophyte on the inferior humeral head. That's a very typical place to get a bone spur or osteophyte in the setting of glenohumeral arthritis. And then looking at the AC joint. So again, seeing the arthritis at the AC joint with a gap between the distance of the, or a gap between the end of the clavicle and the acromion. In the cases where we're getting MRI, the, the stuff I'm looking at is the quality of the tendon, the degree of retraction, and then a very important thing to look at is muscle atrophy. Because again, I want to know, is this an acute issue? Is this chronic? As the degree of atrophy increases in the muscle belly, our ability to get that tendon to heal, and even if it does heal, to have a functional, strong muscle uh, goes down. So the, the degree of atrophy is a very important finding for when considering what kind of management. And also on the MRI, I'm always looking at AC joint, biceps, and cartilage. So if their x-rays looked okay, but their MRI shows they have higher grade wear in the chondral surfaces, um, that's useful information as well. Here's an example of what atrophy would look like. So this is a sagittal view. Um, so you can see the, the, the Y of the scapula in the front or on the left side of the picture. You can see the subscapularis. That's what normal muscles should look like. And the top, your supraspinatus, has almost entirely been replaced by fat as has the infraspinatus. So in this case, this would not be a repairable rotator cuff tear. This would be something that would, if going the surgical route, would need a replacement, or in a younger, healthier patient may require a tendon transfer or some of the more advanced techniques. So treatment is really based on symptoms, goals, exam, and imaging. So we do know the natural history is that tears tend to progress over time. Full thickness tears do not heal on their own. They do tend to get bigger. They often, uh, they do not get bigger asymptomatically, so usually they'll present with more weakness, more pain, something will clue them into, hey, this tear is not getting better, and it's in fact getting worse. For non-operative management, that's their partial thickness tears, some of the small full thickness tears, or the chronic full thickness tears. Operative management, I'd say the acute traumatic full thickness tears we operate early on to fix, or patients that have failed non-operative management with physical therapy, plus or minus a steroid injection. For non-surgical management, the first thing I send them to is physical therapy. And I don't tell them, hey, you need to do physical therapy for six months. I say, give it a good six weeks where you go two to three times a week and let the shoulder essentially declare itself. So if they get better, great. If they're not, those are patients that then we can get some advanced imaging on. But generally speaking, by about six weeks, they may not be all the way better, but they should be noticing some improvement if they're gonna to respond to non-operative treatment. Beyond that, we talked about the oral anti-inflammatories, the NSAIDs, steroid injections, I think can be useful, particularly in the, the atraumatic type injuries to try to give them one, one steroid injection and physical therapy to see if they can uh, get over the hump and go back to having a normal functioning shoulder. And then some of the more, um, the newer treatments such as PRP or other biologic interventions, not a ton of research looking at them yet, but certainly on the table um, as, a, as an option for future study and trying to figure out how we can improve rotator cuff healing. As far as the surgery, the options are debridement, plus or minus a biceps procedure, rotator cuff repair, which is the most common for full thickness tears, occasionally using patch augmentation to try to improve the healing environment. In cases where they're not fixable, the, a newer FDA-approved treatment is what's called a subacromial balloon spacer, which for the chronic tears can be very effective um, for patients that have preserved motion, preserved reasonable strength, but have pain as their main issue. Um, the balloon spacer has um, grown in popularity over the last couple years. 
and tendon transfers for your young active laborers that have irreparable tend, uh, rotator cuff tears is another uh, good option. And ultimately, if they really have irreparable rotator cuff tears um, or progressive arthritis, then you're talking about a shoulder replacement as a potential surgical treatment. So next I'll show this video of what a, um, some intraoperative um, uh, video from a rotator cuff tear. So again, we're seeing a full thickness rotator cuff tear. In this case, you can see the, the grasper is demonstrating this tear has really good mobility. So this looks like a very fixable tear. This is a, an arthroscopic instrument that debrides some of the bone on top of the humeral head to try to facilitate a, a bleeding healing response so that when we ultimately repair the tendon back to the bone, it's going to um, grow back into the, the, um, the bone itself. Another, this is a, an example of what a chronically inflamed biceps tendon looks like. So the long head of the biceps is a very common pain generator in the shoulder. As you can see here, this is not a healthy appearing tendon. Looks like it would cause significant pain, which in this case it was. So rotator cuff repair, it's an arthroscopic procedure. As I showed in the video, you debride the rotator cuff and you use some anchors to anchor the tendon back to the bone with sutures. As far as who benefits, full thickness tears or partial thickness tears that have not responded to non-operative treatment. And it's an extremely effective surgery. So it's very effective at relieving pain and restoring function. I always tell patients the pain, particularly night pain, does not go away right after surgery. It can take several weeks for that to resolve. Um, so if they've had colleagues or family members who've had this surgery, it, it is a, um, uh, a more painful end of the spectrum as far as the recovery in that early period. Um, but eventually patients do you know, quite well. We know tendon healing only happens about 50% of the time, depending on the size of the tear, as far as full healing. But even in patients that don't get full healing of the tendon, they still do very well on objective strength as well as pain measures. So there's a lot we don't know about rotator cuff uh, repair and healing and how to really optimize these outcomes. Um, this study was an ex interesting example just showing that the societal and economic value of rotator cuff repair, um, it, it's valuable in all comers. So really, regardless of age, um, this ends up being a, um, a cost-effective treatment for the vast majority of patients. Here's an example of, of what a, uh, a picture of what a rotator cuff repair looks like afterwards. So you can see you know, the tendon compressed down to the bone. This is a, what's called a double row repair, which is the most uh, common type of repair we use. It the, has the best biomechanical evidence supporting it. And you can see as the shoulders brought through range of motion that this tendon is not moving. It's really compressed nicely down to the bone. So um, this is the kind of repair that you, you're hoping for on every patient. Um, and it, it, um, it, it's biomechanically strong and, and biologically should do well. So we do know when the cuff repair heals, the results are better, but many patients do well even if it doesn't fully heal. And if it's irreparable or all else fails, the treatment of choice is really the reverse shoulder replacement, which has grown significantly in popularity over the last 15 to 20 years um, as, a, as a good option in patients that have um, you know, irreparable tears or have had multiple failed cuff repairs prior. So that's um, a good summary for rotator cuffs. We'll move on to frozen shoulder. I think this is an important thing to always have on your radar when seeing patients is it's, it's one of the, the great mimickers in the shoulder. Um, often they present with pain, uh, decreased use or stiffness. They feel like it's progressively getting stiff. 
The most common demographic we see it in is females in their 40s, um, history of diabetes or hypothyroid puts you at risk. Um, on exam, the big key is the decrease in both active and passive range of motion. And the first plane that they lose motion in is external rotation. So I always have them bring the arm up against their body and externally rotate. And if you see a significant asymmetry between the two sides, that should clue you in to either frozen shoulder or if uh, their x-rays show it, arthritis. Treatment for this is non-operative. So in the early freezing phase where they have significant pain, I think an ultrasound guided clinic humeral joint injection can be helpful. In that freezing phase, I also don't think physical therapy can be helpful because they have so much pain. I generally have them do a home stretching program for the first few months. I see them back in three months to check their range of motion. At that point, I usually get them into formal physical therapy. But I always tell these patients, it can take a year for frozen shoulder to get better. The good news is they almost always do and they almost never require surgical intervention. If they are failing non-operative treatment, which is you know, waiting months and months, not getting any improvements, occasionally we will go in and arthroscopically release the capsule um, to improve the range of motion. So next we'll talk about glenohumeral arthritis. So this is that toothachey or deep shoulder ache type of pain night pain, they start to develop it over years, not after a specific injury. They will also have decreased active and passive range of motion, but you'll see on the x-rays, as you can see here, there's joint space narrowing, there's subchondral uh, sclerosis, there's osteophytes, um, all the radiographic findings that you see with, or with any type of arthritis throughout the body. Treatment for these patients, also non-operative to begin with, so anti-inflammatories, injections. I do have these patients get ultrasound-guided injections into the joint to make sure you're addressing the area of pathology. And if they're not getting better with those uh, treatments, then uh, the ultimate treatment is a short, uh, shoulder replacement. And so for shoulder replacements, there's two types. There's an anatomic and there's a reverse. The anatomic replacements, you need two things. You need good glenoid bone stock and you need to have an intact rotator cuff. So if patients have both of those going for them, they're typically excellent candidates for an anatomic replacement. As you can see on the left, often these are done stemless um, with a plastic component on the socket side and a metal component on the humeral side. For reverse, you can see the first thing I say is anything else. So really those patients have any issues with the rotator cuff, um, if they've had fractures in the past, if they've had failed prior cuff repairs, failed anatomic replacements, um, those are patients that do very well with reverse shoulder replacements. And you can see here, the reverse is exactly what it sounds like. You put the ball on the socket side and the socket on the ball side. And this allows the deltoid to compensate for a lack of a rotator cuff to elevate the arm. And it's an extremely good pain relieving operation and patients can, can restore quite a lot of mobility and function with it. And so, sorry, this was the pre-op x-ray of the patient uh, that got the reverse. Again, this is the one where you see there's no distance between the humeral head and the acromion in the setting of a chronic rotator cuff tear. So biceps tendonitis is another very common uh, pathology that we see in the shoulder. It's often associated with issues at the rotator cuff or impingement. Occasionally you can get instability in the biceps where they feel it snapping over the front of the shoulder. The examination for this um, it, it, I essentially call it the three-pack examination. So tenderness over the biceps groove, 
the speeds test, which is demonstrated on the left where you have the elbow out straight and have them resist forward elevation, or the Jurgensen's test, which is resisted supination, can all clue you in to the um, biceps as the etiology of their pain. Often these respond to the same treatments as your uh, rotator cuff tendonitis, so physical therapy, plus or minus an injection, or biceps tenodesis which is a surgical procedure to remove the biceps from the shoulder joint and fix it to the humerus. So slap tear, it's in the same family as the biceps. It's where the biceps inserts on top of the glenoid. Um, this is where the O'Brien's test are having them bring the arm up in front of the shoulder and resisted forward elevation can be helpful. Um, and often you'll see these on MRIs. For the majority of people, these can be asymptomatic. Slap tears are extremely common to find uh, in patients. Um, but if they are symptomatic, they can either be fixed with a arthroscopic procedure to fix the labrum, which is generally reserved for more of your throwing athletes or people who had a one-pitch pop type of injury. If it's more chronic or in older patients, the outcomes show that it's actually better to just proceed with the biceps tenodesis in those settings. So next we'll touch on shoulder instability. So um, the most common we see is after a traumatic injury. So in a contact athlete, um, they get their arm up and away from them, uh, or they fall, they can get a dislocation of the shoulder, uh, which we can see on these plane films at the top. Uh, so that's an anterior dislocation, both pre and post reduction. This is where I think if you're worried, if you are covering a sideline or, or see one of these patients in your office, it really is prudent to get an axillary view just to confirm that they're not currently dislocated. The other information you can get from it is you can see a hill sacs or some type of bony defect in the humeral head or any uh, concern for bone loss on the socket or glenoid side. So these patients often present with apprehension. So if I see them acutely after an injury like this, I very rarely am getting them into the position that you see on the top view because they generally won't let you get there because they can be very apprehensive. Um, so the first thing I tell them is I don't want to dislocate your arm in the office. So if they have the history that's consistent with that, um, I will kind of test mid-range apprehension. But for the ones that are a little less clear, the apprehension test you can see here is a very effective. Um, and then putting a posterior force on the humerus to do a relocation test where they get improvement in their apprehension um, can be helpful. The sulcus sign you see in patients that have um, more of a uh, ligamentous laxity. And then load and shift can be helpful to determine is it coming out the front or how unstable to the front or the back. So the most common um, pathology you see after an anterior dislocation is a capsular labral avulsion or an anterior inferior labral tear or a bankart tear, all has similar names. So for traumatic dislocation, as these studies show here, the incidence of tearing the labrum is extremely high. So almost a given that the labrum tore, if they've had a true dislocation, had to be manually reduced, um, almost always that anterior labrum is gonna be torn. The other thing that I mentioned was the Hill-Sachs lesion. So again, a very common finding even after the first dislocation. And you can see with the arrow on the x-ray at the top that when the humeral head goes out the front, it then hits back into the socket and the bone on the socket is much harder than the soft bone on the posterior superior aspect of the humeral head, which is why you get a dent in the back of the humeral head as you can see on the arthroscopic picture below. And treatment, 
so close reduction immediately, if you can get to them on the field, um, that's probably your best bet at trying to reduce it without sedation. If it's been out for a while, I always have them go to the ER, get sedated um, so that you're not going to be having to pull too hard or cause them too much discomfort. Afterwards, place them in a sling. After one or two weeks, start weaning out of the sling, get into physical therapy. The other thing that's important to note, particularly as you see dislocations in patients that are over the age of 35, is the risk of recurrent instability is not nearly as high in those patients, but the risk of a full thickness tear in the rotator cuff goes up with age. And so the biggest examination thing I want to see in those patients is that their cuff strength is intact. So I think getting, making sure that you don't just think about the instability in those cases, that you're really thinking about the rotator cuff as patients age, is critically important to make sure that you're not missing a full thickness tear in the rotator cuff. And the younger patients, the risk of recurrence, even after one dislocation, is extremely high. Um, often these can be managed you know, with a trial physical therapy. Any subsequent feelings of um, subluxation or dislocation, they should be taken out of whatever sport they're playing. They should see a surgeon to discuss potential arthroscopic treatment. The biggest risk factors for recurrence is uh, younger, being younger than 20 and being a male. Those are the two, even after first dislocation, where you start to worry about 80-90% risk of recurrence. And so Back in 2007, they did a study um, and came up with a scoring system for the risk of recurrent instability. And again, the biggest risk factor is age, male sex, and then if you have any type of humeral or glenoid bone loss, and if you want to do contact sports. So all of those should uh, clue you into, hey, this might be a patient that needs to have something done uh, surgically to stabilize their shoulder. So the most, a common um, issue that comes up is the in-season athlete. So typically if a patient dislocates in season, um, the biggest thing to getting back to being able to play is one, did their, is their pain improved? Do they have full range of motion? Do they have full strength? And then lastly, can they do their job? So if it's say a high school linebacker, could they actually go and tackle and, and be able to protect themselves to not risk putting this at risk of even a different type of injury, whether it's a head and neck issue or something else. So those are kind of the factors I, I always look at off the bat. And then just counseling the athlete, the family, the risk of this happening again is extremely high in season. Um, every time you dislocate, you're creating more and more damage to the cartilage, the labrum, the bone. Um, and oftentimes patients are willing to accept that risk depending on where they're at in the season um, and, and try to get back. But I do tell them any subsequent feelings of shifting, not even a, a true dislocation, but just any feelings of instability, you should shut it down and, and get it addressed. As far as surgical versus non-surgical management, so this did show that the outcomes as far as getting back to sport are higher in the surgery cohort than the no surgery. Again, for all those reasons we mentioned the risk of recurrence. That being said, for first dislocation, I would say generally give them a trial of physical therapy, but it is a long discussion kind of counseling them the risk of recurrence, um, the odds of, of this you know, happening again are high, particularly for your young athletes. And so it's often a, a, a debate or, or coming to a shared decision-making as far as when to address it, if you need to address it, and, and whether they can get back to playing. So these pictures show uh, the most common arthroscopic procedure we do for anterior instability. And this is a Bankart lesion, so that anterior inferior labral tear and the subsequent repair. This is a, a little bit of an outdated picture, so often these are done with knotless repairs, so you don't have those knot stacks uh, that you worry about causing any type of interference um, in the shoulder. 
Um, and so it's a very reliable surgery to, to restore the labrum and, and shift the capsule back up onto the socket to try to minimize your risk of recurrent instability. So I know we talked about the risk of recurrence after one dislocation. So arthroscopic management also has a risk of recurrence. So in your young contact athletes, there's still a 10 to 20% risk that they could dislocate again even after an arthroscopic procedure. And so this, these are all the factors that I take into account in these patients. So they're young, how many times did they dislocate? Are they a contact athlete? Do they have hyperlaxity or other um, issues going on that may predispose them to um, failing a soft tissue procedure? And then really thinking critically about the bone loss. So if you start to lose bone on the socket, or um, if you imagine the golf ball on a golf tee analogy, if you're missing 20% of a golf tee, it's a lot easier for the ball to fall off. Same on the humeral side, if they have large hill sacs lesions, that may need to be something that needs to be addressed. And so all these are important um, in my decision making for what to do next after a patient fails an arthroscopic stabilization. And so calculating the percent of bone loss, these are where a CT scan can be very effective to determine how much bone is missing. So if you look in the arthroscopic pictures here, um, the front of the glenoid, which is where the tip of that probe is, you can see that it really kind of falls off a cliff. And if you look at the top of the image, the humeral head is actually sitting out anterior, just in a static position. So this is a patient that would likely need a, a bony uh, procedure to provide stability. So for me, in a contact athlete, uh, or if they have glenoid bone loss of more than 10 to 15%, an off-track hill sacs where the defect in the back of the head will catch on or engage on the front of the socket. Those are when I start thinking about bony reconstruction procedures. And so the gold standard for that is what's called a latterge. So you uh, resect the coracoid, tip of the coracoid, and you use that bone from the coracoid to then secure it to the front of the glenoid um, to restore the width of your, um, of your glenoid track to provide stability. So the Latterge is nice because it has threefold, um, or it provides stability in three ways. So one is it increases the bony diameter, two is you get a, um, a good capsular repair, and three is your conjoint tendon acts as a sling when the patient's in a high-risk position of abduction and external rotation. So as they come into this position that would put them at risk of recurrence, that conjoint tendon is providing an, an additional restraint to anterior dislocations. So Latter-J is a very effective uh, treatment for shoulder instability. Um, the risk of having stability is 90% even at 10 years. The return to sport rate is in the 80 or 90%. The downside with the Latter-J is the complication rate. So um, arthritic changes were seen in about 40% of patients at 10 years. It's hard to know if that's because of the amount of times they dislocated to get the bone loss they had, or is it that it's the non-cartilage coracoid reconstruction? So. Um, you know, excellent for stability, but is not a, um, doesn't have, or it does come with its uh, uh, complication risk. A newer technique is using a distal tibia allograft. So as you can see um, on the picture here, the radius of curvature of the distal tibia actually matches the humeral head very nicely. The nice thing with this is it restores cartilage and you have dense subchondral bone. You can also tailor this to the exact size you need um, to restore the glenoid width. Downside is they're expensive grafts. You don't have the sling effect that we talked about, and it's an allograft bone, so you need allograft healing to the glenoid. And this is an example of what that would look like. So the nice thing here is that you see that this is a cartilage surface that you're uh, restoring to the front of the socket. 
um, which theoretically could help minimize some of that risk of late arthritis in these patients. Here are some x-rays of what a distal tibia allograft looks like. So on the axillary view, you can see the, the graft and the native glenoid interface, um, which is where you're relying on your healing, and it's fixed there with two screws typically. Uh, another th important thing, and in, in, I think we've all seen this either in training or in, in practice, is a posterior dislocation. So these are much more subtle to pick up on radiographs than an anterior dislocation. It's typically an adduction internal rotation mechanism. Seizures are common, but, um, but with a seizure it can go anterior or posterior, I would just remind everybody. Um, often they present the shoulder cannot actively or passively external, externally rotate, so the arm is kind of locked there. And this is, again, where I think the axillary view is critical to get because it really is the only view that may show any um, type of dislocation. And so we've all seen um, these get missed by orthopedic surgeons, emergency room, radiology, um, if you don't get that axillary view. And so the light bulb sign uh, shows that the humeral head is internally rotated. There's some overlap between the humeral head and the glenoid. And so if you see this in a patient with you know, a mechanism that makes sense or limited external rotation, definitely someone you want to get an axillary view because you may see this, which is a posterior dislocation. Treatment is generally closed reduction, arm placed in a gunslinger brace, so having the arm in more of an external rotation position, which will allow the posterior soft tissues to scar in or heal a little bit better, and then start physical therapy after four to six weeks. If they've been dislocated chronically, which some of these are, as I mentioned, for the, the reasons where they're not picked up early, um, or if they have a large engaging reverse heel sacs or bone loss on the socket side, um, they may need surgical treatment. Um, but the majority of these can respond to non-operative treatment. And then subtle posterior instability is another uh, common finding we see in, in um, both overhead as well as contact athletes. So an active duty uh, population having some posterior labral pathology was uh, present in up to a quarter of patients. And it's common in football linemen, hockey players, throwing athletes. They generally present with pain and popping more than true instability. As you can see, pain and popping was a complaint in 90% of patients, whereas instability was in 13%. So generally, anterior instability prevents with, or presents with true dislocations or feeling unstable, whereas posterior instability can be more pain. And MDI, or multidirectional instability, um, th these are very challenging patients to treat particularly they have a history of a genetic um, uh, issue such as EDS, but it's generally young patients, they're hyperlax in multiple joints, they have patellar instability, both shoulders are unstable, they can hyperextend their elbows, very high Baten scores, um, uh, positive inferior sulcus, they usually don't have a traumatic issue, um, but they, the shoulder pops out on them frequently. And the treatment of choice for all of these is physical therapy. So. And it's unlike the rotator cuff patients where it can be six weeks, this can be six months to a year of really trying to improve the dynamic stabilizers around the shoulder. And the majority of patients do respond, and surgery really is the last resort if they fail you know, greater than six months of uh, appropriate physical therapy. And here's an example of a sulcus sign. So as you can see in the top, the, that's a normal appearance, but as you pull downward traction on the arm, you see the gapping between the acromion and the humeral head. So these are patients where um, they're at high risk of instability and they uh, benefit from getting into a prolonged course of physical therapy. The surgical treatment for these is different because often they don't have a labral tear. Their soft tissues are, are redundant or patchulous, 
And so you really, uh, it often requires a more invasive approach uh, to shift the capsule to really tighten up everything as much as you can in the shoulder to minimize the risk of recurrence. And then the last thing I'll just briefly comment on is a very rare finding, but voluntary dislocators. Uh, these are patients that are, uh, the common scenario is they're reduced in the ER, the shoulder dislocates on its way to x-ray. Um, the treatment really is educating, it's all muscular controlled, getting them into physical therapy, and occasionally they will need um, a referral for, for psychiatric counseling. Um, but that's just another uh, patient to have on the back of your uh, differential. Wow, that was so great, Ryan. Thank you so much. You went through a lot in a really short period of time. And um, honestly, I think I've forgotten about half of those um, conditions that can affect the shoulder. So that was really great to have that overview. Now, it sounds like for a lot of these conditions, history and exam are really kind of the keys to the, both the evaluation and the management for shoulder conditions. Um, because like you said, it, even if you see um, a rotator cuff tear on imaging, that may not change the management. So aside from you know surgical planning for a primary care doc like me, what situation should I be sending patients to get MRIs? Yeah, I think the, the big thing um, to not miss is the traumatic cuff tears. And so those usually um, had some type of energy. Often you've asked a patient, did you get injured? They'll say yes. But mm -hmm. really, I mean, like, did you fall from standing or something you know, even higher energy than that? If those patients you know, can't lift their arm or have an external rotation lag, that prompts kind of early MRI and referral. So those are kind of the, the two buckets, the traumatic injuries. The atraumatic ones, generally speaking, benefit from trying physical therapy and almost letting the shoulder kind of declare itself. So if they're not getting better, I certainly think an MRI is reasonable, particularly if they have weakness or continued pain. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people, even with, as you mentioned, full thickness tears on an MRI may not have symptoms from that and mm -hmm. can also respond to physical therapy. So okay. I think in the atraumatic setting, PT can be very helpful mm -hmm. to try before an MRI. Okay. Now, have you ever had any trouble getting an MRI approved? Since, you know, oftentimes um, they'll say you need six weeks of PT before an MRI can be approved. But if you're trying to get somebody with a traumatic tear in early, um, what what could help with that? Yeah. So I, I learned um, early in practice, yeah, had some traumatic tears that I was concerned about that mm -hmm. they wouldn't approve the MRI. And so I think the key with those is really just being good at documenting, you know, they had an injury, they had a, most of them had kind of a normal shoulder before, now mm -hmm. they can't lift their arm, they have significant weakness on exam. Mm -hmm. And I would say in those cases, as long as you document acute onset weakness after an injury, and that's why you want the kind of urgent MRI, then they generally will get approved. Okay, perfect. That's a helpful tip. Now, um, how effective are non-operative treatments like um, PT, and then you mentioned like sometimes you'll even use injection to help get them through PT or, or some of those novel therapeutics like um, PRP. How often do patients end up having to progress to need surgery? Yeah, I would say the non-operative treatment is actually extremely effective. So for your run-of-the-mill rotator cuff tendonitis, you know, no injury, just night pain, some weakness, some limited overhead elevation, I'd say 90% plus of those patients tend to respond to physical therapy. Um, and so I'd say the, the small minority end up progressing to any type of surgical intervention. So I think that's another reason why starting starting there is helpful for the most patients. Okay, that's really great. That's um, always helpful uh, to know that those treatments really work. Um, now you, you mentioned PRP, and I, I think that has been something that has been talked about on our program before as kind of a new up and coming um, therapeutic. Is that something that has a lot of data behind it for shoulders or is it still in the experimental phase? 
So I would say there's not a lot of data. I mean, there uh, most of the studies uh, have been done. I've been looking at it in conjunction with rotator cuff repair because, as I mentioned before, the biggest issue with the rotator cuff is the blood supply as far as getting it to heal, um, whether that's with or without surgery. And so we know that there's room for improvement on a biologic side. So PRP mm -hmm. is helpful because it can bring growth factors and all sorts of stuff to kind of promote angiogenesis and try to um, get the tendon to heal more reliably. Mm -hmm. um, the evidence for it is um, outpaced by the marketing that's come mm -hmm. behind it. So I think ultimately in the future, there will be, I think biologics will be an important part of the treatment or PRP. Uh, for rotator cuff tears, but for now, it's still in that experimental phase. Okay. Um, now, going back to kind of the traumatic tear, is that um, definitely a surgical case, or can non-operative treatments help in that situation as well, especially if you kind of like wait too long because you weren't sure um, and, and didn't know right away that it was a traumatic tear? Yeah. So, for the vast majority of traumatic tears, um, they end up benefiting from earlier surgery, so mm -hmm. within a few months, especially the ones where they can't lift the arm at all or they have that external rotation lag, because that mm -hmm. usually means they have a massive tear. And so almost all of those benefit from early fixation. And someone that's in their 70s, low demand, had a fall, and now they have some pain, often we can try some physical therapy in those cases. Mm -hmm. um, but for your young laborers that all of a sudden you know, had an injury and can't lift their arm, those are the ones that we operate on. Okay. Um, what about dry needling? Um, I, I guess I haven't heard much of that on the shoulder, but I've heard a lot about that in recent years. Is that something that can be used on the shoulder? Is that helpful at all? Yeah, so it's another thing where I think there's there's not a lot of evidence behind it. Um, I also think there's relatively minimal risk to it. So I often mm -hmm. tell patients if they're interested in stuff like that, um, I don't see much harm in, in trying um, outside of if you have to pay out-of-pocket expenses. <laughs> um, uh, and I think it would probably be helpful for more of the dynamic, you know, scapular issues where they can really work on the muscles that control the shoulder blade. But mm -hmm. again, uh, not a ton of evidence either way for it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming, Ryan, and explaining all that to us. Let's finish up today's program with a final key point. Ryan? Yes, I'd, I'd say the key point that we've talked about multiple times is really kind of distinguishing those patients that need early imaging versus not. And the majority of patients don't, but I do think just really honing in um, on a primary care side of, you know, does this patient have an injury that may benefit from early surgery? So the ones that can't elevate their arm, can't rotate out, um, and knowing to get an MRI in those cases so that the cuff then doesn't go on to atrophy or have subsequent issues that make it uh, more challenging to treat. And then also just knowing that patients will come in and ask for an MRI, but for the majority of patients, trying some physical therapy can be helpful because um, a lot of them will respond to that. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week with my guest, Dr. Kristen Crichton, to learn about child abuse. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.